3: Hello and welcome to the Guardian Books Podcast. I'm Claire Armistead. This week we're talking to cultural activists who have found different ways of enabling the voices of refugees to be heard. For Pyrene Now, it took the form of a collaborative novel by nine refugees in a Lebanese camp. More about Shatila stories later. But first... I've spent this week not reading, but walking and listening. I've been relearning the power of oral storytelling thanks to a visionary project to harness Geoffrey Chaucer's 14th century Canterbury Tales to the task of exposing one of the great scandals of 21st century Britain, the indefinite detention of immigrants. For five days, a raggle-taggle group of some 120 Latter-day pilgrims could be seen winding their way along a 60-mile scenic route between St Albans and Westminster. Across ancient forests, along waterways, and finally through the crowded city streets to the seat of government. And at every step their tales unfolded.
4: There's a moral to the story. The I'm about to tell. When you take
5: a
6: look around you and you see the tallest wealth,
4: and just because you're cozy, don't think the world is rosy Some people in this world are going through hell And the silent majority stays silent As the despots
3: murder millions worldwide We're walking through Epping Forest, um, sort of straggly group which probably, I don't know how, about sort of hundred meters long I would have thought about 120 people or so in clearly identifiable blue t-shirts some of them Um, some people hobbling a bit because it's day four and uh, a lot of miles have been walked in huge heat I'm very glad to say it's not so hot today and I'm walking beside Mary who is one of the founders of this fantastic refugee tales walk Mary tell us how it came about
7: well, it, it was about five years ago. I visited people in, held in immigration detention for 20 years and many of the men have told us that they feel that they are forgotten, that nobody in the UK understands the scandal of immigration detention and the fact that it's unlimited. They can be held for weeks, days, months or years and we meet people like that all the time. So we decided we'd like to take some of the stories of these people out to the rest of the country. And one of the group, there were five of us sitting in um, a meeting one day, one of the group said, well, we all like walking, so why don't we do a long walk? So we said, yeah, we thought that was a good idea. And we said, well, we could walk from one immigration detention centre to another one. So we voted out walking from Harmonsworth and Colmbrook because that would mean walking around the M25. So we then decided that maybe Dover, where they had a removal centre, which is now closed, but four years ago they did it was still there. So we thought we'd walk from Dover. Um, it's a long way. We were very ambitious in our idea that we would have a walk because it was a nine day walk. So we thought we would walk stopping off appropriate nights in local villages and towns and we said well when we stop we need to tell people that we're here so why don't we invite them to come in and meet us and we thought well we could perhaps tell stories tell tales of the people who had been in detention or experienced being a refugee and arriving in this country and as for the, the the discussion developed we realized that there was a link there to the Canterbury Tales, and we became quite excited by this idea. We then made contact with the Visitor Centre in Dover, and they suggested that we might like to talk to David Hurd, who's Professor of Modern English at the University of Kent, and that he was a great supporter of that group, and that he might be interested. So we did. And five of us got in a car one day, drove to Canterbury to meet David and we all talked at once and we just poured out this idea that, was, that we thought we were very excited about. And he listened to us and he agreed that it was an exciting idea. And of course he was the link with writers. So we then were able to develop the concept that a writer would be able to take somebody 's story, because very often these men and women are not in a position to be able to tell their story themselves because of their situation and because language difficulties may be, but also it 's a very can be very painful it can be too painful to articulate it themselves, and so David used his fantastic contacts, and of course, success breeds success, so we you know, you find somebody like Ali Smith, and she very generously was one of our first writers. And Patience O'Garby, who's walking with us today, was one of our first writers as well. So we've been walking now, this is the fourth year we've walked. We have two books published of the tales um, by Comma Press. So we now use it as a tool, the books as a tool to lobby MPs, because it's only through Parliament. That the end to indefinite detention can happen. It's going to have to be through uh, um, an amendment or an act of parliament. So we are spending a lot of energy talking to MPs.
3: And as well as the evening talks, you have lunchtime talks. And this year is themed around the UN Declaration of um, Human Rights. How has that manifested itself in, in the programme?
7: Well, it is actually the 70th anniversary this year of the UN Declaration. And we feel that it's not actually been marked very much in this country. We're always having loads of exciting anniversaries, but this one doesn't seem to have been marked. So we're marking it in a number of ways. Each morning we read some of the articles as we, stand, you know, as we get ready for, for going out. And then each of our lunchtime talks, the speaker takes as their theme one of the articles of the convention and it's been a a fascinating experience listening to the various people who are lawyers and academics on interpreting the the declaration and how it pertains to our lives and the very much the lives of the people who are walking with us, who are former detainees and are still often in the limbo of statelessness and they can't work, they have no no rights at all in this country at the moment that they just hang on year after year waiting for a decision on their on their status
3: one of the talks which i heard last night was by uh, rabbi jonathan wittenberg who is also a published author. His most recent book, Made Me Chuckle, It's called What um, Things My Dog Taught Me About Being Human. <laughs> and his tale was called The Erased Person's Tale. And he was talking about um, the fact that although this country has traditionally been a place of refuge, including for his own family, came over from Eastern Europe, It's there are other ways to erase people apart from killing them. Bureaucratic erasure was what he was talking about. Very, very chilling. One measure of just how hard won these stories are. These are stories that are literary, but they're doing very hard work um, on behalf of both the people who are telling the stories and on behalf of the people they're telling them for. So they're anonymised. Let's listen into a bit of Jonathan Wittenberg telling the story of S.
4: After three months in exile, Es and his family were told that it was safe to return to their homeland. They took a boat back across the river to their native country, but as the crowded ferry approached the landing beach, all the young men were separated out for questioning, to assess whether they might have been part of the militia fighting against government forces. Anyone suspected of belonging to such rebel groups was removed and eliminated without trace. The militia in turn opened fire on the passengers, many of whom were killed. It was chaos. People took revenge. Lots were shot, S recalled. 400 people perished in the massacre. S, his brother, and their two cousins were taken away and detained for several days. He and his brother were subsequently released, but their cousins were never seen again. They simply disappeared, together with many hundreds of young people. He was with me on the boat. After we landed, I never saw him again. S began to work with the families of the victims, many of whom had likewise vanished. No graves were ever found. Relatives were concerned that those responsible for the killings would never be brought to justice. A collective was formed to gather together the evidence of these atrocities, but many of the survivors were afraid to come forward and testify, fearing that the regime would take revenge. In 2015, S, therefore, decided to apply for asylum in Britain. He prepared the necessary documentation with great care, including the latest United Nations information concerning X, a report commissioned from a Stanford University professor known internationally for his research on the country, a further dossier by an expert in the UK, and an 11-page letter explaining his personal history and the circumstances underlying his application During his appointment with the Home Office, the official who interviewed him kept interrupting. It quickly became apparent that she had read none of the documents S had submitted. Matters proceeded in this desultory fashion until eventually the woman instructed him to wait. After two hours, she returned and informed S that he was going to be detained forthwith for a few days while the case is examined. This epitomizes that environment of intentional hostility, that culture of disbelief which those at the top are held to be encouraging. There is a time and place for skepticism. Sometimes it is appropriate, even essential. But persistently to discredit the carefully corroborated evidence of another person's suffering is a form of cruelty. It undermines the humanity not just of the victims, but also of those who practice such policies. S was taken to the detention centre at Harmansworth.
5: Well, my first walk was actually the second refugee tales walk. We walked from Canterbury to Westminster um, via Dartford, etc. And, uh, and it's very interesting to see how our desire to spread the word, about doing away with indefinite detention is like a snowball it's just got bigger and bigger as it rolls along 120 walked each day over the weekend a very mixed bag I don't mean that to sound (laughs) a very mixed bag a lovely wide range of age ethnicity ex-detainees and so on and then During the week, because people are working, many of them, there are roughly 60 to 80 walkers each day. And we finish our walk tomorrow at Westminster. Then we go on... Two coaches, I think, have been hired to the British Library where we have our grand finale. Welcome. Uh, Before
8: before we have our lunchtime time talk. There are just a couple of announcements. Um, the minor announcement is that if you need to fill up, maybe it's not minor. If you need to fill up your bottle of water, there's a kitchen just through that door, and take a ride. So uh, please fill up your bottle of water. So, um, as you may or may not know, uh, as part of this year's Refugee Tales Walk, we are marking the fact that it's the 70th anniversary of the promulgation of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. What we're really doing is we're marking the fact that this anniversary seems to have gone quite largely unmarked, uh, notably by some of the world's politicians. The way we've been marking this is that, so each morning, to remind ourselves what the Declaration actually says, we've been reading it out loud uh, over breakfast. We've literally been sort of uh, digesting it in the mornings and then walking with it through the day. And then during, lunch, during our lunchtimes, we've had a series of talks uh, which are coming at the Universal Declaration from a series of different angles. Uh, it's a huge pleasure today to be welcoming Andrew Langdon to give the, the talk, the, uh, the Universal Declarations talk. Andrew, is, uh, Andrew Langdon QC is a barrister at Guildhall Chambers and last year was Chair of the Bar, Chair of the Bar Council. And very importantly for us, as Chair of the Bar Council, he commissioned an extremely important report on the subject of indefinite detention uh, and and that report made it absolutely clear that it's time for a limit, that we need to end indefinite detention as a matter of urgency. Andrew, we've invited our speakers to take uh, a particular article as their jumping off point and Andrew, very appropriately, has taken article 6, which I will say to you just because it's one of the clearest sentences in, in the whole declaration. Article 6 reads, everyone has the right to recognition everywhere as a person before the law. Uh, please welcome Andrew Landon. Thank you. A
0: great a privilege. Um, I sat down last night and wondered how to approach this subject. And what I want to try to do is um, think a little bit about history, but also think a little bit about how things have changed in the last 70 years. And where we are now in the light of what we are campaigning for. And when I finish speaking, please do, um, if you want to, ask any questions you like. I'm a, I'm a criminal lawyer, that's really what I do. And that brings an insight into the subject of detention. And uh, I, I always remember the real shock that I got, really rather late in life, when I suddenly understood what indefinite detention meant in relation to immigration. Because, as you know, in crime, it's not quite like that. Um, So here are my thoughts. On the 22nd of June 1948, the Empire Windrush docked at Tilbury, not very far from here, carrying 492 passengers, many of them children. And in a world then so recently scarred by conflict, conflict whose roots were the abuse of arbitrary. On the 10th of December, 1958, <coughs> as you know, the UN General Assembly adopted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Why? Because the people of the world wanted uh, freedom, justice, and peace, and were asking themselves how can we best achieve it uh, by is the answer according to that preamble that you've all been reading. Recognition of the inherent dignity and of the equality of all members of the human family, the inalienable rights that follow those two things. Much is said about equality. I want to concentrate on dignity. The inherent dignity of every human being is where the preamble starts. Whoever we are, we understand what dignity means. It's being valued and respected. Dignity is about worth. Worth, not measured according to the prevailing political mood or philosophy or religion. And neither is the worth of a person assessed according to wealth Or connections, or colour, or creed, or gender, or physical or mental health, uh, we recognize human worth simply for its own sake. A person has worth simply by virtue of being born. And as the preamble says, the worth or the dignity is inherent. We are born with it. We never lose it. It cannot be taken from us. And a world which is free, just, and at peace will recognize and protect the dignity of every member of the human family.
9: Barbie. I'm a poet, and um, in 2014 I, I published uh, *Telling Tales*, which was a 21st-century multicultural remix of *The Canterbury Tales*. And on the strength of that, I was approached by Anna Pinkus of Gatwick Detainee Welfare Group, and also David Heard at University of Kent to take part in a project which was a walk in solidarity with refugees and asylum seekers. And they were actually approaching writers to work with an asylum seeker to hear their tale, to witness their tale, record it, and then to create a poem. Or it could have been a prose piece, but of course I'm a poet, so I wrote a poem. The remit was really, I suppose, to, to honor their experience and to, to give them voice, to give voice to them. But they could have, of course, just transcribed the interviews. What they wanted was to get writers to kind of craft the work so that it'd be more powerful because it had been actually crafted. You know, when you hear someone's tale, you have to make that, those very difficult decisions. You know, what do you, what do you use? What do you leave out? But at the same time, you're, you're, the imperative is to, to honour their experience, especially somebody who's experienced a near-death experience. Um, Gatwick Detainee Welfare Group had had a group of people they knew, refugees they, they, who felt safe with them, and they approached them and they, they agreed to, to be interviewed. So I, I met Farida, heavily in quote marks, it's not her real name, at their offices. So there were other people present. Anna Pinkus was also present. There was a lawyer present at the time, It was quite intimidating. Um, my refugee was very well known in her her original country. You know, I was, I was very worried I'd say something wrong or do something wrong. But it, actually meeting Farida was a, a, a wonderful experience. She's very warm, very warm character. So it, I instantly liked her, which helped. I mean, I didn't expect that. It was just luck, I suppose, that I had such a sort of... Bubbly personality. I think I was expecting somebody who would be, look, look so, sort of visibly traumatised, but obviously during during the interview, you know, there were a lot of tears at times. It was, it, was, it was quite emotionally, quite quite painful to just hear how what humans can do to other humans really. And um, yeah, there were there were lots of uh, lots of tears shed by all of us actually. Interview took about an hour and a half, and. Um, and that was about. That was probably enough. And then I went off with the tape, listened to it over and over, two or three times maybe. And I found there were certain phrases that really sort of leapt out at me that I decided I'd definitely use in a corona. I wrote a. a it's a, like an old um, form where basically an old Italian form where you it's a sonnet sequence where the last line of one becomes the first line of the next, and the very last line is the very first line. And it, it, on top of that, it was it was it's extra complicated because. I chose, the, the 15th stanza was, included all those, all the previous repeated lines. So, so I, anyway, I began, so I began with these 14 lines that are kind of, I say, words had leapt out of the poem and then crafted them into a sonnet. So it had to kind of rhyme as well. Um, astonishingly, somehow managed to, to rhyme. I had written Coronas before. I wanted to, I think I wanted to create a, a thing of beauty. I think that was very important because the subject matter was so ugly. It was somehow that juxtapositioning of using, using this beautiful form, the difficult subject matter, would somehow make it easier for the listener. I thought that was really important. So that's what I created. And I was given total free reign. I kind of wrote the poem. I, I said you know, to Farida, would, would she like to read it halfway through? She said, no, no, I trust you, just write it. And then I finished it. I said, it's finished. Would you like to read it before I send it to David? No, no. She was, there's total trust there, which also terrified me because I thought, well, what if she said that and then she doesn't like it? And then I, I read it in Oxted in Surrey um, one of the evenings of the walk the very first year and she was in the audience and, um, and at the end she came over and said thank you, it's me. So she, you know, I said like, thank goodness for that. <laughs> I think by then it had already gone off to the publishers, and was going to be published in the first anthologies. I thought it's written in stone, but I think it's because I used a lot of her phrases, and I deliberately didn't correct them. I mean, her English was very, very good. You know, she's very, very good English. But you know, I, I didn't correct some of the phrases. I just wanted it to really sound like her, like her voice, rather than impose my own voice. So it, it truly felt like a collaboration. And, and, and in the book, it always says around the poems as told to and then names the poet you know rather than because it's not by me it's a collaboration the walk is a wonderful thing because you're you're walking with like-minded people you feel the love in the air the very first time i got to oxted to read my tale, everyone was sitting outside on the grass when i arrived and i just thought i wish i'd walked i wish i'd done that because you just felt that energy so i knew that i wanted to walk um there's something about reclaiming the land reclaiming the countryside you know the visibility yeah. of the refugees all, all of that's really really powerful yeah. i wish we didn't have to walk you know i wish that yeah. you know that people weren't indefinitely detained in britain i don't i still don't, I don't quite understand how that ever was allowed to happen but in terms of the actual the whole thing so you have the walk of course you have the the evening events are a marvelous thing you know live live readings where you know you always have a you have a writer and previously you'd have maybe somebody who'd supported a tale from somebody who supported refugees asylum seekers now increasingly there are the voices actual asylum seekers are now writing some stories which are are being witnessed you know either either read by themselves or read by others so that's very exciting it's very exciting development because the being part of this community has given them the confidence to be able to talk about their experience
3: So I'm now walking alongside David Hurd, who is one of the originators of this literary strand in the Refugee Walk. And uh, I wanted to ask you, David, what the connection with the Canterbury Tales is.
8: (laughs) Well, we are right from the beginning. The basic impulse was to communicate the stories of people whose stories weren't being heard. So that was fairly straightforward in the first place. And then um, we were thinking that it was necessary that um, we communicate these stories as far and as wide as possible, And one thing that it would be good and also kind of visually spectacular to do would be to to walk with these stories. So kind of straightforwardly what we we were doing the first year we walked was we were taking the tales of people who'd been held in indefinite detention to local communities where on the whole people had no idea that in the UK people were detained indefinitely. So it was a a straightforward kind of reportage project but then it was fairly obvious that the the model for that was um, Canterbury Tales. And we've kind, of, we've kind of drawn on that at various points. I mean, if, you've, if, if people take a look at the volumes, you'll see that in various kind of ways, the writers play with the Canterbury Tales. But one of the things we were interested in, in the tales, the original tales, is that the people telling the tales in the Canterbury Tales are not telling their own tales, they are, they're reporting on somebody else's experience. So they've all travelled, they've all just come back from, they've wandered all around Europe and they come back and they meet in this pub in London and then they go on this journey and rather than just kind of straightforwardly reporting on their own experience, they start sharing other people's experiences. And so you kind of get this community emerging very, very quickly, which is on the move and it's about movement and it's kind of bringing story and movement together. So it like fitted, basically.
3: There's also the the sense in the Canterbury Tales that all of life is there, including animals and and fart jokes. Yes,
8: (laughs) yes. I don't know if all of life is here. I mean, we're so uh, what, what Canterbury Tales has is like a wonderful diversity, obviously, and what we hope we have is, is that kind of wonderful diversity. There are ways, you know, there are ways we're not like the Canterbury Tales. I mean, there's a kind of, there's a kind of banter that's going on in the Canterbury Tales, and there's a kind of cruelty, and, and there's fart jokes and that kind of thing, and we're not, we're not doing that whole thing. But we are very interested in what it means to uh, remind people of the intersection between movement and story, but also we are kind of we're going back to a very early moment in the language, and we're saying, look, this is how the language evolved. It evolved out of people travelling and bringing like fragments of stories from elsewhere, and just talking through, you know, just being in conversation with one another in a literary linguistic way. We're interested in the fact that Middle English was a language in flux. And we are living in a moment when the language is kind of hardened into place and it's very much not in flux and it's kind of, you know, it's establishing its borders and its boundaries just like physically we are. So we're just kind of, you know, we're trying to move things on a little bit, I suppose.
3: And in terms of moving things on in a political sense, do you think that it's been at all effective beyond the 120 or 150 de- devotees who turn up every year?
8: So the answer to that that is yes, absolutely. Um, so. When we first walked, we thought that we were walking, it was like one time only. We would, we would walk and we would make this announcement and, you know, our work might be done or at least we might be done in or something like that. But then the, the minute it dawned on us that we should publish the tales and then the, the minute that we had the books, we also realised that what we had was a kind of campaigning tool or a lobbying tool. And so what we've been doing, certainly in the last year and a half, is we've been taking the, the volumes of tales directly to MPs and saying these stories are uh, directly the consequence of this policy of indefinite detention and you need to read these stories and then you need to uh, and then you t- need to change the law there are various organizations campaigning very hard in this area we are certainly not the only organization doing that but we, but we also know that taking the stories of people, stories of people to policymakers has its own kind of impact. And so, what we do when we meet with an MP is we uh, we present them with the stories, and then we ask them if they're willing to sign a fairly uncontroversial pledge, which is, would they be committed to a 28-day limit to uh, indefinite detention? Now, opposition parties in the last election were uh, all signed up in their manifestos to ending indefinite detention. And what we are increasingly doing is speaking to government M- MPs, um, p- posing all the same questions and issues, and we are definitely finding some traction. So there is no question that uh, we, can, you know, we can discern and kind of document um, a political progress one way or another. It's, a, it's an important year for everyone working on this because uh, a consequence of Brexit is that there will be a new immigration bill um, before March next year, and the, the Immigration Bill presents the opportunity for somebody to lay an amendment um, calling for an end to indefinite detention. And uh, it seems not unlikely now, but it certainly would have been unlikely two years ago, that that amendment might be laid by a Conservative MP. Um, so this is, so one way or another, everyone who's working in this area is achieving some kind of progress, I think. I would also say that as you look around the world and you, and you see that detention is becoming a kind of epidemic, I think everybody is now getting the message that this is not a practice that we can continue.
3: down Stoke Newington Church Street, and there seems to be the whole of the school population seems to be out to greet us. <laughs> Swagged along the school wall, there are lots and lots of lovely posters which say, refugee tales. So welcome in lots and lots of different languages I mean, there must be a good 20 different languages and it's the local, this is the population of the local primary school in the centre of the East London borough, North East London village as it were of, of Stoke Newington. What a welcome for the end of this um, fourth day of the fourth walk in the fourth year.
6: To you, all power to you and thanks for stopping by today. We'll continue to hold you in our thoughts and prayers and the work that you're doing and try to gather momentum for this particular cause. So thank
10: you very much indeed. thank you, thank you.
11: Now the penultimate <laughs> stuff
3: of the day in a huge, great, wonderful church in North London, where we're waiting because the, because they weren't expecting quite so many of us. We seem to have swelled. There seem to be more people now than there were this morning, weren't there? And I'm here with Cam, who's somebody who's been on the
11: whole of the walk. Yeah, 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 right, yeah, 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 yeah. My name's Cam. Um, I'm from Sri Lanka. I'm doing this walk for this is my fourth year.
3: What does it mean to you this walk? Why um, do you come back every year?
11: It means okay, they're doing it for good cause you know, in order to stop the indefinite detention, you know, the Home Office are doing very ridiculous things because we are not prisoners, we are human beings, so they shouldn't treat like us. Even though, see, I think, as you you know, prisoners know when they're going to be released, but the detainees, they never know when they're going to be released. That's the main fact.
3: Were you in detention yourself?
11: Yeah, I was in detention, here for two years in Gatwick Brookhouse. So whenever I was going to up, uh, apply bail and the judge and then Home Office officers, they always rejected my bail. The reason always, you know, was, you know, we don't believe you. If I if we give you bail, okay, you won't be, comply our conditions, those kind of things. But uh, the main intention is Home Office intention. They want to keep the, all the asylum seekers in the, in the detention center and then deport back to their own country. That's their main, main duty.
3: So, Riddy, are you, are you another person who's been here every year since this walk started? No, this is
12: my first walk.
3: I recognise your voice because you were the person who was asking questions um, to our criminal lawyer, who, the criminal lawyer who spoke to us at lunchtime, because one of the things that we have is a talk every lunchtime. You were interrogating him in a very legalistic way.
12: Yes, I was, because he was reading about laws, and which these laws don't imply to us, so I just wanted to know where the, these laws were coming from, but I didn't get an answer, maybe next time.
3: But, he, but he, what he said was he totally sympathised, yes, sympath- but there wasn't an answer to this problem, wasn't yeah. it?
12: Yeah, there wasn't an answer to it, but even though there are law that's been set forward, but I'm confused, so this long till now, there's no answer, so how do we answer it?
3: How does that make you feel, hearing somebody sort of high up in the legal business saying that? Does that make you feel very sad, anxious, or do you just feel resigned? you know that that's just how it is?
12: No, it makes me very sad. You know, it makes me not feel safe, you know. I'm lucky to get out of the situation. The people that are still in the situation, I feel sorry for them because they don't know where they're going. From a person from that, that study that's in that ranking cannot answer that question, and who will? Nobody.
3: Have you had your story told at all? No, I'm
12: telling it today, <laughs> yeah yeah i'm reading it myself it's better that it comes from me because i experienced it and i lived through the situation thought up to tell the story as it was so i had to break it up in pieces because it was a long story but after to cut it should just give you an idea how it was
3: So now let's go and get some food before the evening revels begin.
13: Hi, I'm Jonathan Bartley, I'm co-leader of the Green Party, and I'm thrilled to be your host for this evening. Uh, I am such a fan of refugee tales, uh, which I first came across an outreach project of Gatwick Airport Detainees Welfare Group. Uh, me to... I'm thrilled now to uh, introduce someone who's going to tell you one of those stories first hand. Uh, a former detainee um, called Reedy. Reedy, come up and tell us your story. Let's give him a round of applause.
12: All right, the story based who I am, who I am. I was born in Congo. I came here as a young child with my family because we had to flee, to flee from war. We got out just in time. Growing up in the UK, I always thought and felt this was home. I thought I was British. Police station sitting there for four days in the police station. You're only meant to sit there within 24 hours. If they ain't got a charge against you, they have to release you, but not on my case. I sat there day one and day two. I asked the sergeant, what's going on? He said, I don't know. You just have to wait. You're not in my custody. You're in the home office custody. I'm confused. What's the home office? says, you just have to wait. Day three, I waited. Day four, eight in the morning, the van came. Two men from the van came. said, get ready, we got to go. Go where? Brookhouse. Nahams. Colin, Brook. Colin Brook. What's Colin Brook? You just have to go then mate, that's what he request for you to go. I was confused. Why am I going there? You just have to go there.
13: Friends, the chorus of dissent. We
6: were going to (coughs) sing of hope, and it's ness and and the last few words that are involved. Singing in this most incredible piece of music is Vincha.
7: I will win. I will win. We will succeed.
13: Characterized by unique temporal, spatial, and stylistic experiments that connect and explore the borders of genre, of race, of gender, of culture, of history, of sexuality. Very, very pleased to welcome Bernadine Houston.
6: Once this girl reached Libya, it was a point of no return, she said. You do not have a choice to go back as one smuggler hands you on to the next. And this girl was kept there in some kind of dungeon with about one hundred others by men who were beasts, she said. If they had no use for you, no prospect of getting ransom money, they shoot you. If you are a woman with child, they might leave you alone. The rest of the females were theirs for the taking and they forced her to pay for her passage across to Italy by forcing themselves on her many times with no protection and no hygiene, until she was not young anymore. This girl had been there two months when they collected her in the middle of the night, drove her to the sea, put her on a boat. She crossed into Italy and joined another wave of people on the move and made it to Calais where she waited three months before coming to England in the back of a lorry. Now, I knew the challenge was to make this girl a credible witness to her own persecution, when she was only a poorly educated 15-year-old village girl, fresh from her troubles, who was nowhere near recovered, and that the clever, mature and university-educated asylum officials Would be determined to catch her out. I knew the challenge was that the asylum caseworkers are also overloaded. They have to meet targets and have no time or patience for asylum seekers who are not able to express themselves well. I knew I had to support this girl's mental state to the point where she could have a thought process bearable enough for her to be able to recount her story to the solicitor I got for her, with me sitting there supporting her over a number of sessions, sometimes waiting or ending the session when she broke down in tears, or her body would go into uncontrollable spasms during a panic attack, knowing that she was being forced to relive the horrors of her journey. I knew that if she could tell her story, succinctly and fluently at the substantive interview without having a panic attack or clamming up, she had a chance of getting through on the basis of her human rights claims. I'm pleased to say that this girl was granted asylum in the end and is now at college, although she is not doing well there.
13: Thank you to Refugee Tales uh, for this evening, and for the finale, I would like to leave you with uh, Sir Michael McRae Jones Orchestra. A round of applause.
3: We heard from Cam, Riddy, Patience Barbie, Bernadine Everisto, Jonathan Bartley, Mary and Mari from Gatwick Detainees Welfare Group, David Hurd, Andrew Langdon, Jonathan Wittenberg, the children of William Patton Primary School, Dilly Baker, Rector of St Mary's Church, and of course the good people walking with refugee tales. With music by the Chorus of Descent, the Elastic Band, Greg Russell and Kieran Algar and St. Michael and All Angels Steel Orchestra on location between Chingford and Stoke Newington.
10: Head over to Hulu this March where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series We Were the Lucky Ones with Joey King and Logan Lerman.
3: As we've heard, authenticity is a primary concern for people working with refugees, helping them to give voices to their stories. Pyrenee Press is no exception, and they decided to work in a unique way to bring together nine Syrian and Palestinian refugees in the Shatila refugee camp in Beirut in order to write a novel, together. Micah fogel editor of the Pyrenee Now series of books, joined Richard Lee in the studio to explain how she masterminded the whole great adventure. So how did
2: this project come about? When did it start?
14: So it was actually beginning of 2017. I thought that I wanted... We we hear a lot about refugees in the press and also there are some books, of course, out about refugees but written by professional writers. And Pirini also published a book called "Breach," where I sent two professional writers out to the Calais refugee camp in 2015. But this time I wanted to give voice to the refugees. I also speak Arabic, so I thought I could probably combine this. I approached the NGO, a Syrian NGO but Lebanese based now, uh, called Basma and Zaitouna, the Smile and the Olive, who operate across the Middle East from big refugee centers. And I approached them and I said, I want to find a group of people who are interested in collaborating in a novel with me and I would run a workshop. So we then agreed that Shatilla Camp would be a good starting point just because I've heard of Chatilla Camp, of course. And they have a big culture, Basman Zeituna has a big cultural center in Chatilla. So they put out the word. Uh, from the start, I was very clear because I thought, how can I attract you know people to do this? That I, I was very clear that I would pay them and they would get published in English and in Arabic.
2: But you were specifically after people who hadn't written before, or did you not mind? or
14: I basically didn't mind, because my, my priority at that point was to get a group of people who are interested.
2: And definitely for a collaboration, to do one novel with you.
14: Yes. yeah. So I was very clear that it, it should be a collaboration, because... Again, the other thing I was clear in my mind is that I wanted to produce a book that wouldn't just read as, oh, poor refugee can also write. So bad quality. I wanted good literature. And by saying this should be a collaboration, I gave myself and the editor, Sohaya Halal, us two as editors, also more creative freedom. So anyway, so eventually we ended up, uh, so Basman Zeltuna then ran a startup workshop with 20 participants who were interested so I taught uh, somebody from Busman Saituna you know, over Skype to run a three-hour workshop. and at the end the participants were asked to write just a page, a four page about their name. could be a story, could be real, whatever, because we just needed to see can they actually write, i.e putting you know, words on paper. And that was uh, so hey and my first slight shock because truth to tell, there was only one piece of writing where we felt uh, the the writer had actually got an idea of how to structure their thoughts. Anyway, we chose 10 of the 20. One, we had then one dropout. And those nine, we then went out to Basman and Zaitun, uh, to Shatila. We ran a workshop with these nine uh, people. And yes, yeah, so I said to them, if you stick out the workshop, if you listen <laughs> 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 what we are telling you, uh, and if you then deliver, then you will have six weeks, and you have to deliver a story of four thousand words. If you do that, your material will be used in the book. Plus, you will get an advance, and you'll get a contract.
2: So, what sort of time are we? This is still last year. This is this when when did this happen?
14: So we moved fairly quickly because, and from my experience, it's 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 a project, and you know, if you want to pull off a project, you just have to keep the timeline. Uh, so we went out in. July last year to run the first workshop. So Best Men's basically they had run their preliminary, yeah. The preliminary, the yep. preliminary yep. thing in June. We went out in July, stayed there for a week, gave a three-day workshop. Then their writers had six weeks. We stayed in touch with them via WhatsApp and had one Skype. Now I also have to say, it's all sounds you know, you probably imagine them sitting in front of their laptops. Uh, all of this of course is not necessarily wasn't a given. Most of them don't have laptops. They had to queue up to to use the only computer available at uh, at the cultural centre. Uh, Shatilla has power cuts more than anything else. And m- some of them had never used a computer before. Um, so, But we needed, of course, at that point, it wasn't good enough for them to just deliver it in, in handwriting. We needed it typed out. Anyway, I mean, to our amazement, they delivered. And what and were they
2: like? I mean, you say you were slightly uh, perplexed or slightly uh, terrified by the first stab. What, what were they like?
14: Yeah, so... <laughs> Uh, so the age range was, uh, the youngest participant was 18, the oldest 42. Some have university de- degrees, others, you know, especially the two young youngest men, they fled from Syria, had to drop out of school at 15, haven't been able to rejoin school since they arrived in Lebanon, so the educational background varied hugely, but what was amazing and, and, of course, we had a number of challenges. None of them turned up in time. You know, in my Germanic way, I said, OK, we we'll start on a Tuesday, nine o'clock. By 11 o'clock, finally, they started mm. trickling in. Some had real reasons because, yeah, life in this camp is chaotic. Others, just timekeeping isn't their you know, priority. <laughs> So that was our start, and my heart just sank deeper and deeper. But then towards the end of the first day, I still remember suddenly feeling the energy in that room changing. And the next day, they all were there at spot on nine o'clock. And what they then delivered after the six weeks was absolutely incredible. They delivered three of them, and not the ones I thought from uh, just the feeling in the class, delivered almost complete stories.
2: And so then you took the stories and then you worked them into this into this one continuous piece of drama?
14: Yes, yeah, so first of all we then went back. So they delivered end of August, we went back beginning of October, uh Suhea and I, for another week. But at that point now we we actually worked with each individual writer on their story. We also had, of course, by that point, an idea of, you know, some we just knew they almost delivered. They can't, we can't push them further. I mean, basically because of time restriction. But we then worked on on certain paragraphs with them. I had, by that point, an idea how I could interweave them into a single narrative. Because, again, I didn't want to publish a collection of short stories. I think that's a very difficult seller, as we know. And I'm really keen that people just read this as a, as a fantastic novel so i by that point yes had an idea of how to intervene it, which could be the main characters uh, how i can link them together and so we worked with each writer on their story with that in the background and then we took the material got rid of minor characters various subplots straight away handed that raw material over to a translator nashwa Govanlock from arabic into english She translated that and she did a fantastic job because her challenge was actually to translate the voices. Because what we have here is actually the richness in the voice because they are the authentic voices. And again, some of the writing, you know, Arabic is is a difficult language to write. Most of the original stuff, some of it was literally, even for Suheya, who's Syrian, unreadable. I mean, I remember one particular story which landed in my inbox, and I clicked it open, and I started reading it, and I thought, I don't understand it. So I rang up Soheya, uh, and she said, I don't understand it either. Uh, so we then had actually to talk to the writer, who then read it out. And as we listened to it, we got.
2: Then it started to make sense. Then it yeah.
14: started to make sense.
2: I see. So, so then you, so you've got all the stories translated, and you're working them all together. And you raised money very quickly on Kickstarter to yes. fund the project, yeah. and then you had a, a, a finished version by May, and then out a couple of months later.
14: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. You said it's very important to you because there are. I mean, there are other. There are collections of short stories of professional writers retelling stories or there, there's uh, bits of reportage from journalists. But it was, you said it was very important to you to hear directly from the people who've had the experiences themselves. Why is yes.
14: that? Yes. At the beginning, I wasn't sure why, to be quite honest, why it's important. I just thought I wanted to, you know, we're talking about, for example, diversity in literature a lot. And I thought, OK, let's see if I can make this work uh, to actually hand the tool of creative writing to people who are we don't usually hear in the literary world. Can I make this work? So that was actually my my initial challenge. It was, a, yeah, it was a creative artistic challenge. And I wasn't really sure what the end result would be, what I would get out of it, what we are adding, to the literary world what I think uh, what we have added are the voices because the voices these these writers have created are totally authentic and I really don't think that any writer who hadn't gone through that experience would have been able to create the voices and that of course was not just the translator's challenge but then eventually also my challenge as I interviewed the stories is to preserve
2: yeah, that, the voices that, that's a fascinating thing because it seems to me that, that fiction at the moment is in a kind of bit of a kind of existential crisis <laughs> on <laughs> this on this topic there's, <laughs> there's writers who argue that uh, that they need to be able to imagine their way into any experience that they like and there's other writers who say that unless you've lived that experience it is in some way not enough where do you come down on that divide?
14: I'm not coming down uh, on either side, to be quite honest. I mean, you know, as, as a writer, I'm, I'm a writer. And, uh, you know, of course, I imagine things I haven't experienced myself. And I think I any writer should have the freedom to do that. Uh, I, I, you know, I can imagine to be a man born in a different country, whatever. However... If I, let's say, as a writer, would have written, uh, you know, would have gone to Shatila, talked to these writers, then went home and sat down to create a story, it would have been a different story. And that's my point. And so what you're
2: arguing for isn't that one or the other is correct, it's just that you're arguing for a plurality.
14: Exactly, yeah. And um, I'm also saying that, yeah, I feel that Shatilla's stories written by these nine writers is is adding something and it's adding something really unique
2: did you and so discuss between yourself the possibility you might be accused of appropriation of of using these people's work
14: i i um (laughs) <laughs> I never thought that would be a problem because I was so clear in my mind. I'm not appropriating, you know, their, their work. Um, and yeah, they're credited
2: right there. They're yeah.
14: credited right there. And I'm not there, or neither Soheya nor I are the writers of this book. And I was very, very clear, and I am very clear about this. The writers are the nine uh, people living in, in Shatila. Yes, we were the editors. We shaped their narrative but they did the initial creative process. Yeah, there's also, act.
2: I guess there's a whole series of choices that you make in that shaping process about, about how much of the shaping you do and how much you leave and how you say, again, you were after the voices in particular. Mm. So How much you try to bind them together into one coherent mm. whole, how much you let them sing. Were there arguments between the two of you or were you very clear what you wanted to do? Did you discuss a kind of a theory of approach?
14: So what we did is, once we had all the stories, we, of course, discussed between us how can we interweave them. But then it came to the point when I had the material in English that I knew what I had to do was to just sit down and start working on it. And in some ways, it also that comes from my experience as a writer. The reason why I could pull this project off and why I want to do similar projects is because I'm not just a publisher I'm not just an editor and I'm not just a writer I'm all three things combined so when I set down, so as a writer the way I write is that I often see images so I have a few images and I know they're coming from within the same space inside me but I have absolutely no idea how are they linked initially and that's, of course, why I think plot is so important, because plot then links them together. And I'm a great fan of plot, which has become the baddie-boo of literary fiction, sadly. <laughs> um, and I think it's nowadays often, you know, plot, you know, uh, the moment you do plot, you're supposed to be writing. It's, it's you know, sort of... It's
2: judged commercial. Commercial, it, yeah. yeah.
14: But I think... Uh, as if we're yeah. above
2: that, it's too... <laughs>
14: exactly. Well, I, I think actually plot is really, really important. It's one of the most difficult things to do as well. Anyway, so this idea of the images, combining the images, that's how I work as a writer anyway. So I thought if I bring together inside a room different people and they create because it's not me who created these images it's not me who created these voices uh, with Shatila stories it's the writers who created that but then I sat down and it's it's then it becomes you you have to work line by line and in the book itself the the main plot is of course a love story between Shatha and Adam now that love story didn't originally existed in that way because the, these characters come from two different stories. And again, Sohea and I didn't see that while we were discussing it. It was only when I actually started really to engage with the stories by, line by line that I, I still remember that feeling late in January this year <laughs> when when I suddenly thought, oh my God, Adam is in love with Shasa and suddenly everything else Came fell into place. Into, yeah. into place. Yeah,
2: it's a kind of hybrid project for a kind of hybrid publisher. Yes. Do you think it could have been done if there was not that kind of intermediate step of translation, that in some sense that let your writers let go of their text?
14: I would like to do, I have some other projects in mind uh, where, uh, so for example, one of the projects uh, further down the line is certainly that I would like to work with a group of ex-Youth gang members here in London. So, so you'll see. I'll see, <laughs> exactly. It's
2: part of Pyrenees now, which is your kind of slightly more uh, abrupt imprint. You first all did the, the Calais jungle and then Brexit and now Shatila. What are the kind of the challenges and opportunities of this kind of slightly faster publishing schedule?
14: What's interesting is that people actually, um, yes, this idea of fast literature is what often I've noticed that people pick up on that. And of course, I think it is to do with the moment they hear fast literature, you know, that it's a clash. It, it can't happen. You know, literature is supposed to take years in the making. Um, it's you know, the archive. The tortured, it's the tortured and... artist sort <laughs> of uh, syndrome. I don't, you know, so again, it's very interesting. When I thought of Pyrene now, um, yes, I, I, I knew it, I wanted to have a timeline, you know, but that's also to do with commission. You know, it's it's a it's like when you make a film, you have a number of people working, and you have to have a timeline. Because so, otherwise,
2: the project just sort of
14: yeah. Otherwise, you know, some you know, this person might take a year, the other person might take three years, and the project will never come together. So I think if it's a collaborative project, as all the Pyrenees now books are to various degrees, you have to stick to a timeline, and it's actually really useful. So. I mean, our Brexit novel, The Cut, was Anthony Cartwright. Again, we had a very tight timeline there. I mean, Anthony, we discussed it. I mean, that's what he signed up to do. But, you know, he produced a draft within six weeks. And then we met, we discussed it. Uh, Then he had another four weeks. Then we discussed it again. Uh, I guess you, sort of.
2: I guess you've got to keep moving as well because the facts on the ground when you're being this immediate the facts on the ground just change I mean within three months of your publishing a breach the, the jungle itself yes. was uh, was cleared.
14: Yeah that's not I don't have that necessarily in my in my mind because ultimately I want to publish good literature and good literature for me is timeless. So even though it is reacting to the here and now, what I'm hoping we have so far produced with all three pyrene books is literature that will last because, you know, we're ultimately talking about the human condition.
2: Yeah, so what's next?
14: Well, so I'm just applying for a visa to Syria, because I think artistically it makes actually sense that we now find a group of writers who uh, or people who have stayed. So we've now, Shatila Stories is, was working with people who have fled the war zone, and we now, Suhey and I, want to find people we can who have actually stayed and do a similar collaborative project with them and see what comes out of their subconscious.
2: And I guess because this is published in Arabic as well, I guess some of them may have read
14: this book. It hasn't been. So we are actually, Pyrene is going to publish it in Arabic because I haven't found a Arab publisher, sadly. And um, that was the deal I again had with the writers um, because they actually haven't read the book yet because they can't read English. So at the moment, as we're speaking, it's being translated... It's being back.
2: translated back!
14: Yes, into Arabic. <laughs> the reworked
2: version appears. Exactly,
14: yeah. um, using some of the original material. But but actually, yes, I mean, it's, our version is the original. The Pyrene version is the original. So then Sohea and I will go to Beirut in November and launch the book out there with the writers.
3: Shatilla Stories is published by Pyrene and is out now. Refugee Tales Volumes 1 and 2 are published by Comma Press. Next week, the American poet Jericho Brown will explain how his powerful political poetry lit his route back to a faith he thought he had left behind. In the meantime, please subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. And join in the discussion on Twitter or by leaving a comment on the podcast page. As always, if you'd prefer to contact us directly, you can email us at bookspodcast at theguardian.com. But for now, from me, Claire Armatstead, and my producer, Susanna Trezilian, goodbye and thanks for listening. And as an extra treat, we'll let the Chorus of dissent sing us out with their spectacular Nessun Dorma.
5: Shut up.
10: more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.
1: Before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha